0: This is a Rooster Teeth production. December 3rd, 1990. Northwest Airlines Flight 299, a Boeing 727 with 154 people on board, is getting ready to depart from Detroit's Wayne County Airport. It's a particularly foggy day and the airport's visibility is at one quarter mile. Over the radio, they hear a controller mention that a plane has missed its turn and is looking for help to get where it needs to go. By the time Flight 299 lines up for takeoff, the visibility has gotten even worse, but they decide to take off anyway. As they reach a speed of 100 knots, an airplane suddenly appears facing them on the runway. With no time to react, Flight 299's right wing slices through the other aircraft. How did this other plane end up on the active runway? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello. Hello, Chris. We're here talking about another uh, airplane incident. Uh, before we dive into it, as always, I want to remind you, you haven't followed us on social media yet, have you? At Blackboxdownpod, Shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> Go follow us on on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever wherever you got social media, we're probably there. and we're we can yeah. post photos and videos that maybe we can't adequately convey in the audio format. For this episode in particular, we're going to be posting some diagrams of the airport as uh, it was at the time from the NTSB report. Because this one might be a little confusing, but we're going to do our best to talk through it. But if you need a visual guide, you can go look on the social media right now and uh, follow along with uh, what we're talking about.
1: And I would just like to apologize on behalf of Gus and myself and Dennis, our producer. If you're already following us, I'm sorry we shamed you.
0: (laughs) You're, You're right. You're right, Chris. No shame. So, Northwest Airlines, flight 299, is what we're talking about right now. It's, uh, it was a passenger flight. Just Northwest aside, Northwest Airlines doesn't exist anymore. They got uh, folded into Delta. I was about to say, I was like, Northwest Airlines, I don't think i ever heard of it. Or I mean, I, yeah. You've heard of it, but like, you probably haven't seen it. Yeah, they got acquired by Delta ooh, some time ago. They probably ceased to exist probably back like in 2010. Maybe the, like the late 2000s was when uh, Delta finished acquiring them.
1: So there's Southwest Airlines and Northwest Airlines. I assume they're just named based off like the areas that
0: they were most dominant, but they don't have any relation, right? Correct. That was like the areas of the country that they serve. Like Southwest Airlines started up in Dallas at Love Field, and they focused on the Southwest portion of the United States. It's really not an accurate name anymore. They service a lot more than just the Southwest, but it's like where they started. These airlines kind of carved out parts of the country to try to— Service loss. In fact, I believe there was even like a Northeast Airlines. What? Yeah, Northeast Airlines used to exist for a while. It existed between the 30s and they went out of business in 1972.
1: Oh, okay. Well, I wonder if we'll ever cover
0: a reason why it went out of business. <laughs> Maybe we'll cover that one day. I don't think that there's a, there's probably not a particular reason. If it went out of business in 72, that was probably right around the time that the airline industry was deregulated. So it probably had to do with government deregulation as opposed uh. to anything that we would cover. Oh, man, we went on a real tangent. Sorry. Okay, anyway, back back to Northwest Airlines Flight 299. Uh, it was a passenger flight going from Detroit to Memphis, like I said, on December 3rd, 1990. The flight was crewed by Captain Robert Ouellette, who was 42 years old, had 10,400 flight hours. And First Officer Darren Owen, who was 31 years old and had 3,300 flight hours. The aircraft was a Boeing 727, purchased by Northwest in 1975. Uh, so it was about 15 years old at this point, mm-hmm. had a 37,710 flight hours and 27,933 cycles. There were six flight attendants and 146 passengers on the flight as well. Flight 299 was initially scheduled to depart at 12.10 p.m., but they had to change airplanes, and that delayed them. So they had to get on a different airplane, and the crew actually didn't board till about 12.45, so they're running late. Okay. Flight pushed back to taxi at about 1.31 p.m., the flight was initially cleared by the West Ground Controller to Runway 3 Center by turning right out of the gate and holding short of OSCAR 7. We've talked about these before. OSCAR 7 is just like a taxiway that they can take going out to the uh, to the runway. Okay. The flight crew listened to the Automatic Terminal Information Service, uh, ATIS, which noted that visibility was three-quarter mile. It's just like an automated service they can listen to for updates about the airport. You know, what runways to expect, what the weather's like. It's just huh. like a, a repeating... Like the, like-
1: The radio of like, welcome to,
0: now there's this thing is on this thing. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Expect departures on this runway. Expect arrivals on this runway, you know, where the cloud cover is, stuff like that. It's pretty, it's a very common thing. That way everyone just doesn't have to constantly inundate the controllers Mm -hmm. asking them the questions or, you know, you can just listen. Like, okay, you get all the information, all the basic information you need uh, from ATIS. They were then instructed to contact the east ground controller near Oscar 9, And then they were told to taxi to Runway 3 Center via Oscar 6 to Foxtrot and to advise when crossing Runway 9. So just basically giving directions like how to get to the runway, you know, go down this way, take Mm -hmm. a turn here, let us know when you're crossing this other runway, just like the instructions they need to follow to get where they're going.
1: This sounds like back in the day when you had to ask for directions for stuff instead of putting it. On your phone, it's like you stop and someone's like, oh, you know, is it down that way?
0: <laughs> take a left down, down, you know, okay, you're going to see a highway. Don't take that. Go past that. Yeah, it's similar, right? But uh, there's little signs at every intersection. If you've ever been on a plane, like when you're taxiing around the airport, I'm sure you look out the window and yeah. you see these signs. you have got like letters and numbers and arrows pointing in different directions. That's what they're using to navigate all of this. Mm-hmm. So they continued to monitor ATIS in case of updated information and check the company's takeoff visibility minimums for the runway. They found that the takeoff minimum for this runway was a quarter mile visibility. And at the same time, the airport information visibility updated to one quarter mile. Their visibility was at the minimum they needed in order to take off. Okay. They're being prudent about it. You know, they're double checking, like, do we have enough visibility? Is this safe? They check it and it seems okay according to the procedures. As they taxi through the Oscar 6 area, the flight crew observed a Northwest Airlines DC-9 taxiing eastbound on the outer taxiway towards Oscar 4. The outer taxiway runs parallel to runway 9, and this was off to flight 299's left. Shortly after, they heard a discussion on the ground control frequency concerning a taxiing airplane missing the Oscar 6 intersection. So, I mean, they're listening, right? Like you said, sometimes maybe it's confusing. It seems like this other plane missed their turn. So now they're like, oh, great, you know, what do we need to do to get back where we need to go. Uh huh. Flight 299 then crossed runway 9, and they reported that they were clear. So they just heard them talking in the background?
1: Like, this other plane missed their thing. You know, like, it's, they're not actually
0: talking to that plane. Correct. They could, they're all on the same frequency because they're talking to the same tower. Yeah. So uh, they can hear everyone else that's talking. So flight 299 turns onto Foxtrot, and they begin to power the number 3 engine. As they turned onto taxiway X-ray, which runs parallel to their runway 3 center, the ground controller requested their position and told them to switch to the local controller. So they're basically, they're lined up on their runway now. The ground controller says, okay, I'm done with you. Go talk to the other, the local controller instead now. Mm-hmm. They stopped at the whole line for three center, and then they were cleared for takeoff at 1.44 p.m. As they began the takeoff roll, the first officer stated, definitely not a quarter mile, but at least they're calling it. So, so he said, he can't see far enough, but he's like, but they say it's okay. Right. This, so they're, they're concerned about it. It's really foggy yeah. on this day. So around the same time that Flight 299 was preparing for the flight and taxiing, so was Flight 1482. Northwest Airlines Flight 1482 was a passenger flight from Detroit to Pittsburgh, and the flight was crewed by Captain William Lovelace, who was 52 years old and had 23,000 flight hours, and First Officer James Schifferns, who was 43 and had 4,685 flight hours. This airplane was a McDonnell Douglas DC-9 that was built in 1966, so at this point about 24 years old with 62,253 hours and 88,255 cycles. Old plane. Mm. There were two flight attendants and 40 passengers on this other plane. This is a smaller one, right? Smaller, for sure, yeah. This flight, 1482, was the captain's first without supervision after an extended period of not flying for medical reasons. Okay. He had been medically disqualified from flying in February of 1984, so almost six years, almost seven years earlier, due to kidney stones.
1: Oh, dang. I thought kidney... No, I'm thinking of... The other type of stone, gallstones. I was thinking of the stones that you pee out. Never mind. Ignore. That's a
0: that's a kidney stone. Is that a, he he quit? He couldn't fly for seven years because he had kidney stones. Yeah. He, well, he was medically disqualified. He might. I I don't know the specifics of his medical disqualification, but maybe he had them chronically, or maybe oh. he used it for like a mini retirement. I don't know the specifics of his medical disqualification, but for whatever reason, it was over six and a half years, maybe almost seven years that he was uh, man. I've never had kidney stones, but I, I, uh, they sound horrible. Anyway, that's a tangent. They look really scary. I hope I never get one. Every now and then when I think about them, I'll go and I'll get a giant glass of water. And I, <laughs> I was just thinking, I, was like, I should drink some water. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like, I, I want to make sure that never happens to me. So he was actually reissued his airman medical certificate on October 11th, 1990. So that's about two months before this incident. Okay. The flight crew completed their pre-start activities 40 minutes before the scheduled departure. And they spent those remaining forty minutes discussing their backgrounds, expected flight duties, and briefing for takeoff. Uh-huh. At one thirty-five, flight fourteen eighty-two was cleared to taxi from the gate and was told to turn right out of parking and to exit the ramp at Oscar Six. A few moments later, the first officer said, "It looks like it's going zero zero out here." And zero zero is a term that a pilot may use when taking off into low instrument flight rule conditions, in which the visibility is limited to the length of the runway or less and very low ceilings. So basically saying. There's very, very poor visibility. Okay. At this time, they were given additional taxi clearance, and the first officer replied with, Roger, taxi inner, Oscar six, foxtrot, report making the right turn onto x-ray. See, this is the part of the episode where it really helps if you're following us on social media because you'll Uh be able to see this diagram and place exactly where these two planes are in relation to each other because the diagrams are very well labeled. About 30 seconds later, the first officer said, guess we turned left here. The captain expressed some doubt about this turn, but the first officer replied, near as I can tell, man, I can't see expletive out here. At 1.39, the captain requested flaps 20 to begin the takeoff checklist. They completed six items and then had a discussion with the ground controller about their position. The first officer said they were approaching the parallel runway on Oscar 6, then said they had missed it, then they saw a sign with arrows to Oscar 5, and then they thought at this point they were on Foxtrot now. So they're... Very confused about where they are on the ground.
1: Okay, yeah.
0: The ground controller asked if they were on the outer runway, and the first officer said, that's right. So the outer taxiway follows the perimeter of the gates from where they were initially, and they had to go straight off the outer taxiway onto Oscar 6, across runway 9, and then onto Foxtrot. But instead, they turned left to continue on the outer runway at the Oscar 6 intersection. So when they got to that intersection, they basically just took the wrong turn. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: They like got on that access road or something.
0: (laughs) Right. They should have crossed runway nine and gotten on a Foxtrot, but that's a really good way to put it. But instead, they took a left turn uh, and basically got on what you could consider kind of like a frontage road. Yeah. So the ground controller told them now to continue on to Oscar four and then turn right onto X-Ray. And then this is actually what flight 299 saw from their plane earlier. So they saw 1482 like. So yeah, 299 saw 1482 at this point when 1482 is lost, trying to figure out where they're going.
1: Part of the reason they're confused is just because of the fog and they can't see the signs?
0: It's foggy. And if I recall properly, this the captain of 1482 was unfamiliar with this airport specifically. I believe this was his first time at this airport. And when they were doing their pre-flight checklists, he asked the first officer if he was familiar with this airport. And the first officer said he was. So the captain's kind of relying on the first officer's experience at this airport to guide them around where they need to go. Okay. The captain continued to Oscar 4 at a very slow rate, and the visibility was now getting really low. At 1.42, they approached the Oscar 4 intersection, and they had a conversation that showed they were both very confused about which turn to take. Mm The captain was asking stuff like, which turn is it? Which way do we go? Are you sure we're cleared to cross the runway? And the first officer was replying with stuff like, wait, I think this is X-ray. This should be runway 9. But this taxi light takes us. Is there a taxiway over there? You know, just like. They're not uh-huh. sure at all where they are at this point. I've been there. Not in a plane, but... <laughs> but when you do it, it's, it's not nearly as dangerous. Yeah. You're not doing this like, <laughs> a, like on a street right next to a highway or on the highway. You don't stop and be like, oh, where <laughs> oh, do I no. go? The highway.
1: Wait. Yeah. Oh.
0: So at this point, the captain sets the parking brake of the DC-9. and um, They continue to try to figure out where they are. Where do they park it? Like they're on the outer taxiway looking for Oscar Four. Outer Taxiway. So Yeah, so that's like the frontage road running. Okay. So at least they're not on a runway. Correct. This is the outer taxiway that's running parallel to runway nine and it intersects not quite perpendicularly with runway three.
1: Oh, it intersects? Yes.
0: So they're on the outer taxiway and they're at this Oscar Four intersection. And at this point, what they're supposed to do is take a turn down X-ray kind of to their right. It's supposed to take a right turn down x-ray. But at this particular intersection where they are, I'm going to count. One, two, three, four, five. From their perspective, there's five different turns they can take. Uh huh. So there's two of them that go to the left, so they can eliminate those. They know they're supposed to go to their right. There's three different turns to the right, and they're not sure which one they're supposed to take necessarily. So at this point, you know, the captain, like I said, he set the parking brake, and he says, nah, I don't see one. Give him a call and tell him we can't see nothing out here. Is he intersecting? A runway? At this point, no. Okay, good. He's in the clear. He's trying to figure out which turn he needs to take to be safe. There was a pause at this point for 32 seconds. uh, Presumably, they're trying to figure it out. And the captain releases the parking brake. The first officer then said, yeah, turn left over there. Nah, that's a runway two. The captain replied with, well, tell him we're out here. We're stuck. And the first officer said, that's runway nine. The captain then attempted to contact the ground controller, but was accidentally transmitting on an unknown frequency and 11 seconds had passed before he made proper contact. He told the ground controller that they were out there and they couldn't see anything. The ground controller asked if they were southbound on x-ray, which they should have been. The captain said, we aren't sure, it's so foggy, we're completely stuck. The ground asked if they were on a taxiway or a runway, and if they were clear of runway 3 center. They said that they were on runway 2-1 center, and the ground asked for them to confirm, and the captain said, I believe we are, we're not sure. Ugh. But then the first officer said, yes, we are. The ground control of them told them if they were on 2-1 center to exit immediately. Do you know, I uh, just out of curiosity, do you know another name for runway 2-1 center, Chris?
1: Oh, I do from a past episode. So it, don't they like change names whenever they're facing different directions? Like when you're coming from the north or south, like depending on which way you're coming down it, they like flip? Correct.
0: Would it be 1-2 center? So the way to do it is to either subtract or add 18. Oh, the opposite direction of 2-1 center would be 3-center. And 3-center is the runway that flight 299 is on. Oh, oh, oh. Right. This 1482 says they're on 2-1 center, which means they're facing flight 299, which is on runway 3 center. Oh. Seven seconds later, both airplanes collide on the runway with flight 299 at a speed of about 100 knots, which is 115 miles an hour or 185 kilometers an hour. Wait, so how did he... I thought he was on the taxiway. They were on the taxiway. They were safe, but then they decided they were going to make a turn onto what they thought was X-ray. Oh, no. They picked the wrong turn and they ended up on the runway. So I'll get into a little more detail here in a minute. But basically, when they were at that Oscar 4 intersection, to Mm -hmm. make the correct turn onto X-ray, it was like a 120-degree turn. So it's like, it's not just to their right, but it's to their right and like a little behind them. Behind them. And they just turned right. Correct. So... If x-ray was about a 120 degree turn for them, turning onto the runway, in this case, runway to one center for them was probably like a 60 degree turn. So it's like they come up and it's like if they look ahead and to their right, they see the wrong turn that they took. But if they had craned uh-huh. their head just a little more to the right, kind of behind them, they would have seen the correct turn they needed to take. Hmm. Did the air traffic controller say it's on your right or like what did they? Well, there's signs as well at the intersection, uh-huh. but... Again, we're going to do, we'll dive a little more detail into this. Yeah. The sign placement for this intersection is really bad. By the time they get to the intersection, they've already passed the sign. Mm. There's no way they could have seen the sign from there. Like they would have had to see the sign before they got into the intersection. From the cockpit of flight 299, which is the one that's taking off, the DC-9 suddenly appeared on the right side of the airplane in the path of the right wing. The captain shouted, moved his body left and turned the yoke to his left as well. The two impacted at 145 and 40 seconds. Then the captain of flight 299 rejected the takeoff and stopped the airplane using maximum braking. The wing of the 727 cut through the right side of the DC-9's fuselage just below the windows and continued aft and cut off the right side engine. The DC-9 caught fire and the captain of flight 1482 escaped through the left sliding window. 18 people escaped from the left overwing exit, 13 through the left boarding door, and four jumped from the right service door. The rear jump seat flight attendant and one passenger died from smoke inhalation in the tail cone. There were six other fatalities on flight 1482 for a total of eight. Ten serious injuries and 26 minor injuries. There were only eight minor injuries on flight 299.
1: Were the other deaths besides smoke, were they just like from impact?
0: Yeah, uh, it was from getting hit by the wing basically. Yeah, It impacted just below the wing and Mm -hmm. all of the fatalities were people in window seats on the right side of the plane. Mm. the DC-9 was a whole loss from the damage and the, the ensuing fire. Man. I've seen interviews with one of the survivors who was on 1482, and he was on the left side of the plane. And, uh, you know, he talks about, like, they were just sitting there. You know, imagine, like, you're just waiting to take off. You're on the plane. He said then all of a sudden, he doesn't know what happened. Like, he thought that maybe there was an explosion, that maybe one of the engines blew up, because all of a sudden there was like an impact and smoke, and that he looked over to his right and, you know... He could see daylight filtering in through the oh. fuselage. He said that it was just super disorienting. He had no idea what happened, and that like he's sitting there trying to figure it out, and that he can hear the click of everyone's seatbelts coming off as everyone's trying to escape. And he says, "Oh, I need to get out of here." That's right. Like that's just like being in that moment. Like what's happening? Like not understanding what's going on.
1: That's so visceral. Just describing it, like like you're here, smoke and disoriented, and you just hear click, 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 click. click, click. You're like,
0: yeah. Oh, so. The NTSB carried out the investigation and it was clear that the runway incursion was the main reason for the accident. But of course, the Uh question is, how does this happen? The NTSB believes that a nearly complete and unintentional reversal of command roles took place in the cockpit of the DC-9 shortly after taxiing began. The DC-9 is the one that got lost. Yeah, the guy who was returning. Correct. The captain had asked the first officer if he was experienced with this airport's operations. The first officer responded with yes. But -hmm. post-accident, the first officer indicated that what he meant by his response was that he was familiar with the pushback procedures and the radio frequency changeover points rather than the surface operations and physical layout of this airport. So it's like what I said earlier. The captain asks him, are you familiar with this airport? The first officer says yes, but then says that, oh, that's not what I meant. What I meant was I was just familiar with general procedures, not this particular (laughs) airport. Are you familiar with airports? (laughs) Yeah, right. uh, uh, So this resulted, of course, in the captain becoming overly reliant on the first officer. And basically, he just acquiesced to the first officer's assumption of leadership. So, you know, he's like, oh, well, the first officer knows what's going on. I'll let him lead us out of here. Mm -hmm. And the NTSB believes that this role reversal contributed significantly to the eventual runway incursion. The NTSB found several shortcomings with the airport signs, lighting, and pavement markings. And the investigation revealed several areas of faded or nearly invisible taxi lines, especially near the area where the DC-9 was taxiing. These deficiencies may have been a factor in the DC-9 crew's incorrect decision to turn left onto the outer taxiway. However, photos taken after the accident revealed that the yellow lines leading to Oscar 6 were clearly visible. Thus, if the flight crew had acquired the center line of the inner taxiway at the edge of the ramp, the fork between Oscar 6 and the easterly heading portion of the outer taxiway would have been more evident to them. There were faded lines, but if they had seen a more solid line earlier, which did exist, it would have helped them figure out and not get lost. Mm -hmm. Another confusing factor was the Oscar 6 sign located between the inner and outer taxiways. The sign at the intersection of Oscar 6 and the outer taxiway misled the flight crew into believing they were on Oscar 6 when they were not. So the sign kind of pointed them, making them think they were going in the right direction, but it made them make a wrong turn. This is when it initially started wrong. If they had continued instead of making this turn, they would have been okay.
1: But like one wrong turn led to another
0: one. Yeah, then they ended up at that Oscar 4 intersection, which was an absolute nightmare, especially in these conditions. So the NTSB believes that adding an arrow to this sign earlier at the Oscar 6 intersection would help clarify its meaning. We talk about a lot of accidents here on Black Box Down, but I'm talking about something that isn't quite so accidental. It's how much you would love a brand spanking new burrow couch. They might be made for relaxing, but couches can be stressful when you have to figure out how to move them. If if you find a new place, Uh, not Burrow, with their innovative modular design and super helpful instructions, assembling and disassembling your furniture is quick and totally hassle-free. You can finally let yourself fall in love with your furniture because you can take it with you wherever you go. Plus, with thousands of ways to customize your Burrow furniture, you can make sure you'll fall in love with your furniture. Burrow sofas are made with durable stain and scratch-resistant fabric to withstand whatever you throw at it. Plus, the Nomad sofa has a built-in USB charger. Burrow also offers fast, free shipping on every order, which saves you an average of $100 on large items like a couch and, of course, a logistics headache. I love Burrow couches. It's super convenient. You don't realize how helpful it is to have a USB charger in your couch where you sit down and, uh, you know, using your phone, watching TV. You don't have to worry about your phone dying because it's charging while you're sitting there. It's so awesome. Super comfortable couch. Can't say enough good things. Right now, you can get $75 off your first order at burrow.com slash blackboxdown. That's burrow, which is B-U-R-R-O-W.com slash blackboxdown for $75 off your burrow purchase, burrow.com slash blackboxdown. Having a VPN is super important to encrypt your traffic. Make sure you can keep prying eyes away from what you're doing on the internet. Whatever you want to do, that's between you and your monitor, right? Well, and I can say with full confidence that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. ExpressVPN does not log your activity online. Lots of free or cheap VPNs make money by selling your data to advertisers. kind of defeats the purpose. But instead, ExpressVPN ensures that their servers are incapable of storing any data at all. ExpressVPN has also engineered their own protocol that makes user speeds faster than ever. I've tried different VPNs in the past. ExpressVPN is the only one that doesn't slow down my connection. Best part of ExpressVPN is probably how easy it is to use. Uh, I've said it many times, it installs so easy. It just sits there. It's one button in your browser. Turn it on, turn it off. Whatever you want to do, it. I mean, it really couldn't be any easier. Plus, you can put it on just about any device. It's really, really crazy. And like I said, with just one push of a button, you're protected. So protect yourself with a VPN that I use and trust. You can use our link, which is expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown today. Get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. Visit expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown to learn more. MeUndies is all about the idea that comfort is more than just what's touching your skin. It's about feeling comfortable in your skin. That's why they use only sustainable, breathable, soft-as-heck fabric, and that's why they give you endless styles to choose from. It's total comfort inside and out. I love MeUndies. They're super comfortable. Got tons of great prints. I'm wearing some Shamrock ones right now. I believe these were a limited uh, print from back in March. It's okay. You wear me around. No one's going to judge you. MeUndies offers classic colors to absolutely bonkers prints, any sizes from extra small to 4XL. It's also you can fully express yourself in your own unique way. Never leave your couch again with a MeUndies membership. It's a monthly subscription that sends new pairs right to your door each month. You'll choose new undies, socks, or a bralette and pick the style and color or print that makes you feel the most you. Fun, right? Plus, enjoy discounted pricing, free shipping, and exclusive early access to new launches. Love your butt and get the membership. MeUndies has a great offer for any first-time purchasers. You get 15% off and free shipping, plus easy exchanges and refunds. To get your 15% off your first order and free shipping, go to MeUndies.com BlackBoxDown. That's MeUndies.com BlackBoxDown. Along the outer taxiway, there were no signs to indicate the flight crew was approaching the Oscar 4 taxiway. It's logical to assume that Oscar 4 comes after Oscar 5, but in this case, the turnoff to taxiway x-ray was next. And again, if you follow us on social media, you'll see this crazy little intersection, this Oscar 4 intersection with five different ways out of it. <laughs> so that's like just like a hub intersection kind of thing or it's just... Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you've seen it. There's some intersections like around our office, Chris, that are like uh-huh. this where it's like three streets come together into like five lights. and You're like, if it's your first oh, time at the intersection, you might yeah. be confused. Like, which way do I go? What is this? You know, your first time there, you'll be very confused. But after you go through it a few times, you're like, you get an idea for the flow of it. Yeah. But imagine if it's your first time and it's foggy and you're in a plane.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I feel like my mom is afraid of driving in cities because she's used to, uh, you know, more rural mm-hmm. areas. And then so when she's in a city, she's like, there's so many things.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's way more confusing. I grew up in a really small town and when I moved out of that town, I moved, uh, I went to college in Houston. So I went from a really small town with like 20,000 people to Houston. It was like yeah. the ultimate driving shock going from like driving in a really small sleepy town to, you know, I felt like at back then I-10 had, it was wider than my town was. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it had so many lanes. Okay. So several investigators were confused by the signage in this area where they observed it on a clear day. And the NTSB also found that the whole lines for Oscar 4 were parallel to runways instead of perpendicular to the respective taxiways. Oh. So that basically just makes them like not quite in the in the optimal position. Mm-hmm. Flight crews expect whole lines to be at right angles to taxiway center lines. And in this accident, the DC-9 crew may have seen the yellow markings, but they could have failed to recognize them as whole lines because of the angle relative to their taxi path. Mm-hmm. So like I said earlier, it's like it was kind of poor sign placement. There was also an absence of runway edge lights on runway 3 center at the Oscar 4 runway intersection that probably also contributed to the flight crew's actions. So even when they got to that intersection, they couldn't determine which way was runway 3 center because the runway's edge lights weren't there. So normally if there were uh-huh. edge lights there, they would have known, okay, that in that direction, that's the runway. You know, we definitely don't want to go in that direction. Uh-huh. But those lights weren't there. If those lights had been embedded into the pavement, they would have absolutely noticed it. And they would have stopped and said, that's definitely not the way we're supposed to go. So they just didn't have the lights. Right. There were no runway edge lights there. And we've talked about some of the different lights in the past. You know, that would have definitely been a clear indication. 100%. That is the runway. That is not the correct way to go. Uh And although it was not a direct factor, the NTSB discovered that the center line lights on runway three center were not annotated on airport diagrams. I guess in my head... Like the runway
1: and the and and the taxis would be like different colored or something, but I guess and they should be right. Like beyond just the stripes or the lights, just like different colored pavement, like painted differently. I don't. know. Oh, the pavement. Oh,
0: hmm. I see. But what I you're don't saying.
1: know. I guess a, it, part of that is like a lot of times
0: whenever you're on a highway or something, like the access road is like. Well, they'll use different materials in the case yeah. you're talking about, like surface streets and highways mm-hmm. and actually, like they may be made with different things. Even driving down the highway, I'm sure, like you hear. It sounds different sometimes when they're in different stretches of yeah. road. I don't think they have that luxury necessarily. I think that there's a standard that they have to follow for materials just because oh yeah, planes are so heavy. <laughs> and, you know, they hit with such force. So, I mean, that, that's an interesting idea. But I think the theory is that different colored lights and different colored stripes and painting should help alleviate that. But in this particular case, paint was faded and some lights were missing. Yeah. Uh, just real fast, I talked about the centerline lights on 3Center not being annotated, in the diagrams. That's something the FAA is supposed to take care of. And the FAA inspectors are responsible for making sure that airport diagrams are accurate. And pilots use these diagrams to predict what they're going to see when they taxi. And what I keep mentioning on what we're going to post on social media is I'm going to post excerpts of these airport diagrams so you can see what the pilots saw and you can see where the signs are in relation to everything. And these are things that they, they're talking about at this point in the investigation. In addition to the centerline lights not being on the diagrams, the runway centerline lights were also not turned on. The oh. tower controllers thought that they were on, but because of the poor layout of the lighting panel, they didn't realize it was set to off.
1: And it's a foggy
0: day. It's like people driving at night without their lights on. Mm-hmm. And it's significant, of course, because if the DC-9 saw the centerline lights, the bright glare through the fog would have been a warning to them that they were about to be on an active runway. Again. Another set of lights that would have warned him. That's a runway. That's definitely not the correct way to go. In analyzing the accident, the NTSB examined the actions that could have been taken by the ground controller to prevent runway incursion. After determining the DC 9 missed Oscar 6, the controller did have some options. Because the Oscar 4 area had been identified as a potential incursion hazard in material available to him, he could have had the airplane turn onto Oscar 5 instead and go back to the Oscar 6 intersection. So basically, once he realized that he missed his turn, he could have had him you know, in car terms, exit, take the turnaround and go back to the, mm-hmm. the exit, you know, the turn that he missed and re- get it correctly. The NTSB believes that many controllers would not have used this option, especially when communicating with professional pilots who are presumably familiar with the airport. He could have given them progressive taxi instructions, informing the crew to continue to the next taxiway intersection to hold short, basically giving them step by step instead of giving them all in steps at once. hmm Furthermore, recognizing the low visibility and problems already experienced with the crew, he could have requested the local controller to suspend takeoff activity until he was certain the DC-9 was clear of the Oscar 4 area and on x-ray. So he should just be like, stop everything, kind of, yeah. Right. The NTSB believes the ground controller's actions became deficient when he became aware of the crew's difficulty in the Oscar 4 area. His awareness occurred at one hundred forty five and 2 seconds, one second before Flight 299 began powering up their engines for takeoff. The NTSB believes the ground controller should have informed the local controller and the supervisor immediately he was unsure of the DC-9's position. Uh, if he had done so, the local controller might have reacted to warn the crew of Flight 299 about the potential hazard. So what actually happened here is the ground controller did, in fact, give a warning to uh, mm-hmm. his supervisor that, you know, maybe this plane was lost. And they, they issued a hold. They immediately said, stop all traffic. But what had happened was flight two nine nine was not on the ground controller frequency anymore. They had switched over to the local controller. Oh and the local controller had thought flight two nine nine had taken off by this point, because I think like a minute or two had elapsed by then. But two nine nine was double checking their minimums to make sure they could take off in this in thick the fog. Weather. Right. So the local controller didn't inform them, thinking that they were already at this point taking off. And they didn't hear it because they were on the local controller frequency and not on the ground controller frequency. So there's actually a lot of findings when you go through here because this was so preventable, right? This was so Uh such an incident that shouldn't have happened. So visibility at the time of the collision varied with the lowest estimated horizontal visibility near 100 feet. The official visibility was a quarter mile. But like you heard the crew of 299 say, like, we don't really think this is a quarter mile, but they're letting (laughs) us take off anyway. The 727 captain attempted to take off in runway visibility of less than a quarter mile. The runway centerline lights on runway 3 center were not illuminated at the time of the accident. The placement of taxiway signs, the conspicuity of taxiway markings, and the runway lighting were inadequate at the time of the accident. So, so far, just reviewing all the things we've said so far. The DC-9 flight crew failed to follow their assigned routing in taxiway Oscar 6 area. The complex intersection of taxiway Oscar 4 and runways 9 and 3 center was a recognized danger area with a strong potential for runway incursions but was nevertheless inadequately marked. A reversal of command roles occurred during the accident sequence in which the first officer made most of the decisions regarding taxiing activity and the captain tacitly relinquished his command role. Uh The first officer misled the captain concerning his familiarity with the airport and failed to follow the captain's direct instructions on three occasions prior to the runaway incursion. The east ground controller missed several opportunities to take appropriate action to resolve confusion on the part of the DC-9 crew. The east ground controller, after he realized the DC-9 might have taxied onto an active runway, did not take timely action to correct the problem. The flight crew of the DC-9 was not initially aware of their incursion onto the active runway because the runway 3 center center centerline lights were not on and the runway edge lighting was not continuous. The lead flight attendant of the DC-9 was not in her assigned seat when the accident occurred, failed to properly secure the R1 emergency evacuation slide girt bar into the floor brackets, and along with other trained crew members, did not inflate the L1 evacuation slide, thereby slowing the evacuation and increasing the number of injuries to passengers. Oh, they didn't evacuate right. Yeah, I mean, didn't go through the procedure properly. We know safety is all about procedure. Mm -hmm. Northwest Airlines' maintenance and inspection of the tail cone exit system was inadequate. The interior tail cone release handle was broken when an attempt was made to jettison the tail cone. Which is, uh, I mean, that's, that's... something I hate to read Uh because uh, if you remember what I said earlier one of the flight attendants and one of the passengers passed away from smoke inhalation in the tail cone so it sounds like they attempted to open that tail cone Uh exit and the handle broke oh my god it's like it just snapped off was it because of the plane crash I, I can't say for certain if I had to speculate the handle was probably brittle and probably should have been replaced. It was probably independent of the plane crash. Like I said, this oh was a 24-year-old plane. That's right. If the NTSB report finding here says, as it does, that maintenance and inspection of the tail cone system was inadequate, that means that the handle should have probably already been replaced. That means it would probably okay. was already not going to work properly, regardless of the crash. I can't imagine that in that situation where you go to open and it just snaps off. Right. And then <gasps> two people passed away because of that. So the NTSB determines that the probable cause of this accident was lack of proper crew coordination, including a virtual reversal of roles by the DC-9 pilots, which led to their failure to stop taxiing their airplane and alert the ground controller of the positional uncertainty in a timely manner before and after intruding onto the active runway. Contributing to the cause of this accident were, 1. Deficiencies in the air traffic control services provided by the Detroit Tower Including failure of the ground controller to take timely action to alert the local controller to the possible runway incursion, inadequate visibility observations, failure to use progressive taxi instructions in low visibility conditions, and issuance of inappropriate and confusing taxi instructions compounded by inadequate backup supervision for the level of experience of the staff on duty. That was all number one. <laughs> two. That was just number oh. <laughs> uh, two. Deficiencies in the surface markings, signage, and lighting at the airport, and the failure of the Federal Aviation Administration surveillance to detect or correct any of these deficiencies. And three, failure of Northwest Airlines to provide adequate cockpit resource management training to their line air crews, contributing to the fatalities in the accident, was the inoperability of the DC-9 internal tail cone release mechanism. Contributing to the number and severity of the injuries was the failure of the crew of the DC-9 to properly execute the passenger evacuation. So a lot of blame being placed on the uh, DC-9, not only the DC-9 crew, but Northwest Airlines maintenance in general, when it comes to, you know, making sure that all of this is taken care of. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there's some recommendations here. They, they broke it out to recommendations to the FAA, recommendations to the airport, and recommendations to Northwest Airline. So we're going to start with their recommendations to the FAA. Improved standard for airport marking and lighting during low visibility conditions, such as standards for more conspicuous marking and lighting, evaluation of unidirectional taxi lines for use on acute angle taxiways, and requirements for stop bars or position hold lights at all taxiways and intersect active runways.
1: Oh, yeah. Like trains, like how they have stops, you know, like, or, you know, little things that come up and down, <laughs> <laughs> like the bars. I mean, for real though, something like that reflects a plane is taking off and then all of a sudden like, you know, little bars
0: stop people from crossing. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's dumb, but <laughs> So the stop bars aren't like railroad arms that come down. It's just lines that are painted. Yeah. Like like telling you where to stop. Oh, 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 I know what they're like. It's like when you're driving and you Come up to a light, a red light at an intersection, and there's that big white line. Mm-hmm. Oh, next yeah. to the crosswalk that tells you to stop, that everyone drives over and stops on top of. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. like the equivalent. <laughs> like, when the light's red, you're supposed to stop here.
1: Same thing. I hate when I do that. I've done you know, and then like it's a crosswalk, and then like, oh, it's so embarrassing. <laughs> when people are like, you're like, they're walking around your car, and I'm like, I'm
0: sorry, I'm sorry. And you're like trying to get. <laughs> <laughs> Identify at certified airports complex intersections where potential for pilot confusion exists. Where needed, require additional lighting and signs. Require that all certified airports use reflectorized paint for airport surface markings. Again, just to make it more visible. Require that all certified airports install semi-flush runway edge lights. So again, make sure that they have edge lights. Mm -hmm. Require that air traffic control tower managers reemphasize the concept and use of progressive taxi instructions during low visibility ground operations. So again, that's just like the step-by-step instructions, guiding someone through what they need to do instead of just giving it all to them at once. Mm -hmm. Require that air traffic control tower managers emphasize to local controllers the need for positive determination of airplane departures in instrument flight rule conditions when direct visual observation of departing airplanes is not possible. So this kind of goes to what I was mentioning earlier. Make sure that the controllers know 100% that a plane actually did take off when they can't see it themselves. Like in this case... There was so much fog, the local controller couldn't see that 299 actually hadn't taken off yet. So they need to be 100% sure that planes have actually taken off, not just assume it. Yeah. Develop and implement procedures for redundancy of critical controller tasks and expedite the development of installation of hardware systems to supplement such redundancy. And this is in reference probably to like airport surface detection equipment, like ground radar and things like that.
1: Yeah, I, I was I was going to ask about that later, but...
0: This was still kind of before that was really widespread and it wasn't a requirement. I don't know. I don't remember off the top of my head. I might get this wrong. But I want to say in 1990, it was still something that was being tested. It wasn't Mm -hmm. like rolled out yet. Require that the subject of low visibility taxi problems become a recurring subject in all airline operations manual and pilot training forums. Then the recommendations to the airport. Install semi-flush runway edge lights. Again, they were missing some. Uh, Implement a program to provide for the prompt repainting of faded taxiway and runway markings when they are seen during daily airport inspections rather than waiting for set schedule for overall airport restriping. Basically, if you see faded paint, take care of it immediately during your daily inspections instead of waiting for a schedule to tell you to do it. And then they had one uh, recommendation to Northwest Airlines, which was immediately institute comprehensive line crew member cockpit resource management training as part of Northwest Airlines oriented flight training and coordinated crew training programs. And again, we've talked about CRM repeatedly, and they're just basically telling them you need to really reemphasize this stuff to avoid these kinds of problems. So I know you normally ask in these episodes, what happened to the flight crew? Mm -hmm. The captain of 1482 actually never flew again. That was it. I don't know what he did after that, but that that was his last time in the the cockpit.
1: If he was coming back and then his first
0: time back was that I I, I think I would do the yeah. same. The first officer also didn't fly anymore. He he became a, a firefighter, a first responder instead of being a pilot after that. Uh, but that's it. Flight fourteen eighty two. A it's interesting because I feel like we've covered another incident on the ground before. You know, we did Tenerife disaster where two seven forty sevens collided on a runway, and it's 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 eerie how similar they can be. You know, it's mm-hmm. when when it's foggy planes can't necessarily see each other on the runway. In Tenerife, it was a little different. The airport was small and there wasn't adequate space for everyone to be doing what they were doing. Here, it's like, this is almost the opposite problem where the airport was so big and had so many taxiways and one of the planes just ended up getting lost and got onto a runway it shouldn't have been on. But yeah, uh, again, I want to remind you, give us a follow on social media at BlackBoxDownPod if you want to see specifically these intersections and the places we were talking about follow along.
1: Uh, real quick. What does it look like now? Do they have like GPS? Like you were talking about the GPS thing? Like they have all that, so they can see the planes all together in Oh, like the, to
0: like the ground radar. Yeah. So yeah. Now. Controllers- oh yeah, we've talked. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We talked. They have about they that. have ground radar, so they can see exactly where everything is. So like they can track it all. Now you know most modern planes also have. Like these runway maps back then, or mm-hmm. these, these diagrams back then, you know, they used to be paper. Nowadays, you know, they're with this, with glass cockpits. There's like screens and tablet computers in the cockpit. So pilots could see with a lot more detail, you know, maps of where they are uh, mm. on the ground of, of the airport. And where Europe. they are in relation to it. Right. Probably. And it's like, and you make sure that it's, it's up to date. Uh, the lighting's a lot better. It's a lot more standardized. And, we, and there's some fancy ones, like we talked about Singapore before. Where you just follow a green line, like there's a special series of lights just for you, so you know exactly where nice. to go. So you know this this incident was at this point 31 years ago. We've just seen so much more technology progress in those 31 years. You know that these kinds of things really shouldn't happen anymore. You shouldn't worry about that. It should be you should be feel yeah. <laughs> safe and uh, and secure on a plane uh, since uh, the industry learned so much from incidents like this. Uh, but thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back again next week with another episode. And if you're uh, looking for something else to listen to, go listen to uh, Tales from Stinky Dragon. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's another podcast that Chris and I are on. <laughs> slightly different than this one.
1: Yeah. It's really fun, though. It's like a, a radio play of uh, it's Gus is the DM. Uh, and if you don't know what Dungeons & Dragons is, you don't need to know anything about Dungeons & Dragons to enjoy it. It's just kind of like a, like a comedy story, I guess.
0: Storytelling with dice. Yeah. But you don't necessarily, like like Chris said, you don't have to know anything about D&D to uh, listen and laugh along. Yeah, it's really fun. I listen to it like after we
1: record and it's like, ah, this is like a, is like, like a little play in my head. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tons of fun. Uh, we've been having a lot of fun doing that one too. So go check it out. There's a few, I don't know how many episodes are out at this point, but there should be several you can listen to right now. Yeah, and we'd appreciate it. Thanks. Bye.